AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Hey, Manish, so I guess you were looking into a story about some uh, malware getting into e-commerce websites? Back in September, uh, Visa's e-commerce threat disruption program identified this new uh, JavaScript skimmer. Um, you know, it's targeting the payment platforms of various websites. Um, so they discovered it from um, a site in uh, North American Merchant that, uh, that was previously infected with another uh, similar JavaScript skimmer called Inter. Um, this one is called Pipka, and one of the notable features of it is that it's able to, I guess, remove itself from the HTML once uh, of the compromised website as after it executes. So I guess that's the unique feature of Pipka versus some of the other JavaScript skimmers. Um, <clears throat> so basically, when the when the skimmer executes on, on the script load, it calls the start function, which then calls the clear function, and that clear function set, uh, I guess part of that, it sets the skimmer to look for data every second, and then uh, there's like a script tag um, that the clear function locates, and once mm -hmm. it locates it, it removes itself from the page. So, you know, that it, it pretty much happens immediately after the script loads, making like it's difficult, so now it's difficult to find the code on the page. When you, when you visit the page, you can't find the code anymore. it doesn't anymore. exist there. Yeah, right. right. So they call it a self-cleaning feature. Um, and that's kind of new. That's uh, for the JavaScript script skimmers that have previously exist, existed. So I was going to say, I guess that's. I mean, that's interesting to me because that's kind of insinuating that after it executes once or maybe a few times, I don't know, like how soon after, if it's just one execution right. that wipes itself, does that mean? that the bad guy needs to go re-inject it, maybe right. at some point later, so that he can get another you know, collection of some credit card data or whatever right. for it, the it, next payment? I, I mean, it's, so it, it's, I don't, it's, from what it sounds like, it, they, they don't need to, because it sets the, something in the page to start looking for data, I guess, in the back end, or on the page itself every second. So I'm not exactly sure. They don't really mention what's actually, you know, like on the details of what's happening. Okay. Okay. But it does say that it's looking for data every second. Once it finds the data, then it, um, uh, you know, it's basically looking for the typical payment card data. And I, you know, looking through some of the screenshots that they had, it, um, it even, it was even looking for PayPal credentials. Mm -hmm. I think back end the actual credit card number for that gets sent over from PayPal. And they seems, there seems to be different uh, variations of the, of the malware, um, I guess, depending on the site itself. So if your site has, uh, you know, like uh, a two-step checkout process where mm -hmm. on one you put in your billing and shipping address, and then on the second page you put the actual credit card. So right. there is a variant that looks for that specific uh, functionality in the site. So, they, you know, it seems like it's, you know, they've got several different what, um, variations based on the different variations of checkout pages. Right. Um, which is interesting. So then basically um, what the malware does, it, it base64 encodes that once it finds the credit card information, um, it puts it into a string, base64 encodes it, and then uh, ROT13 uh, cipher to encrypt it, and then sends that off to the, uh, to the C2. The JavaScript implant that gets inserted into the HTML page has a self-cleaning feature where it will remove itself uh, so that if, you know, as an investigator or something, you're trying to figure out what happened, when you go look at the original HTML page, there's no artifacts there of the malware. Um, there's not a lot of detail on how it gets onto the system. Right, right. I'm guessing there must be some sort of, you know, web-based vulnerability or something in the website the to web begin with. Right. 
right. some of the recommendations they make are to you know make sure that whatever your e-commerce or e-cart solution is that you're using for your website that you have all your patches applied and you right. keep it up to date and that right. kind of stuff because right. that might be a method of getting this injected onto your into your uh, your commercial website. I thought it was also interesting that they mention here, um, consider using a, a fully hosted, hosted checkout case. solution. So basically they're saying, don't do it yourself. Don't do it yourself. Let it be somebody else's right, problem, right, right. which is an interesting way of approaching it. But you know, um, that's not necessarily a bad right. idea either. Let you focus on your core business of selling whatever your products and services are that you might have. Right, right. And let all the you know, financial transaction the the things that need a lot of security around them be handled by somebody who's somebody just that that's just that. their only right. job and right. that's all they do and they're making right. sure they do it all right right especially um, if you're like a small or medium-sized business that right. you don't have the funds and you don't really have the uh, know-how to ensure that your site is protected and that your checkout you know and there's a lot of other you know details that go along with that, making sure that you're not storing that information for, for longer than you need it, and there's other right. liabilities that open you that open it doesn't get logged somewhere, get logged somewhere um, on that, your website right. that you don't realize, right. like maybe in a web logs for some reason, right. that you're not you know, auditing yourself. So unless you're really, you know, like you said, if you're a small, the medium size, especially the small ones, you might not have a lot of knowledge or expertise right. in knowing all the artifacts left behind by some e-commerce solution that you might be using on your local website, you right. know, if, especially if you're a small thing. It's not the first problem I've heard with e-commerce websites and vulnerabilities of this nature, right. so definitely something to, to pay attention to. If you're not able to put in the effort and the funds to secure your payment platform, you know, I think it's a really good idea to just farm that off onto to another company to do that for you. In the long term, if you're not able to do it yourself, it's better to let someone else do it for you that has the expertise. So John, I, I hear you have a story about a company that found out they were hacked once they noticed that their servers were maxed out? Uh, yeah, so that is kind of the, the punchline to the story is ironically, uh, well first of all, this is a little bit of an older story, but the detail, details are only coming to light now because right. of some court filings and whatnot. But back in 2016, a company had discovered that they had been breached, uh, and the way that they discovered that there was a data breach in play on their web server was that it actually filled, the disk was filled on it. So they got an alarm about a disk filled issue, uh, went to research that, and they said, oh, wait a second, this is some big bundle of stolen data that's all bundled up here on our server, what's going on? They backtrack it, and through the course of looking at that, they're like, holy cow, not only did someone get in here and bundle up a lot of uh, data from their system. Uh, they also have been in there at least since 2014, so for about two years, which is not unusual. I mean, you know, we've investigated other data breaches here and there uh, for some customers and whatnot, and we've seen uh, data breaches that sometimes can be, you know, many years long before they're really actually discovered and understood. Uh, so I wouldn't say that, you know, that's an unusual right, uh, right, right. thing to happen. Not an uncommon thing, right? Uh, the, I, the, the kind of bad thing about it here is that there was, um, so it had like the personal details of about one million users for the various uh, uh, data that they had on the system. I believe there was some credit card and CVV info and whatnot in there as well. 
the reason I kind of wanted to bring this story up was mostly because I think that this is a good example of people who have servers and systems, they really, especially for websites or even any system, you should have some sort of tripwire type mechanism. There's a lot of other, I'm mentioning tripwire, but there's a lot of other file integrity checking type things that you can, uh, software you can put on servers. And especially where you keep a lot of sensitive information, it's good to have something that's doing some file integrity monitoring, especially in your web content directories. Because uh, we know that in a lot of cases I, that we'll see initial systems get compromised through some sort of vulnerability on the website, a web shell gets deployed, and from there they can kind of move it laterally and start collecting right. stuff. Um, but if you're watching those directories, that probably should never change unless there's some sort of source code change right. to the system. Um, you know, you would pick up on the fact that a web shell got dropped onto the system or things like that. Right. So, you know, having some something like that would be a recommendation I would make to people, um, and to you know segment your networks more properly as well. If if this is a backend database, you know, have it segmented so that it can only be accessed through you know right, right. proper control channel. The fact that a lot of the basic um, triggers, you know, mechanisms to kind of identify the traffic or secure your data or secure your site or secure your servers, you know, patching, all of the things that, you know, are commonly discussed on this show here, you know, many of them were not done at all. Even in 2014 and 2016, to hear that a company with that much data is still doing that is kind of upsetting, actually. This is something you should probably pay attention right. to with right. your systems. And because uh, you don't want to be the next person to end up in a story like this, right. you know, in the news, obviously. It was kind of amusing that the only reason they found out right. was because right. the bad guy no made other, a mistake, so to yeah. speak, by filling up the disk. If he had never done that, it could have been still Pretty going on to this here. day. Yeah, uh, no other tripwires in place at all, right? Right, if yeah. the actor was more stealthy and conscious about not filling up the disk or staying more low profile, right. they could have like stayed in there for even longer. You know, make sure you're spending the time and budget and effort into your cybersecurity practices. Make sure you have things that are triggering and monitoring, you know, the activity that's happening. Hey, Manish. Uh, so, sounds like another state-sponsored actor has built up some new kind of infrastructure that they're using. That's right. So, Trend Micro published a report about uh, APT3033, which is uh, believed to be an Iranian hacking group. Mm -hmm. Um, so they're trying to uh, hide their location by setting up their own private VPN infrastructure instead of just using the commercial VPN infrastructure and the servers that are already out there. Um, so they, you know, they layered and isolated their infrastructure pretty well. Um, you know, it's, I guess it's like it was segmented into four different layers. So the first layer was their custom um, VPN uh, nodes. Okay. Then they connect to their bot controller layer. Um, from there, it's like the C2 backend layer, and that's what they were using to manage their botnet, okay. uh, the malware. And uh, finally from that, or actually not finally, so from that, then they go through a uh, proxy layer of different cloud proxy servers. And then finally to the actual targets that they were uh, after. Um, so there's a lot of steps to get to the victim. Um, you know, a lot of p potential um, ways to uh, mask who you, who you know who the attacker really is, 
But unfortunately, what happened, well, I guess unfortunately for APT33, I guess Trend Micro was kind of aware of their, or had some sort of knowledge of some of their uh, VPN infrastructure. So mm -hmm. uh, it actually kind of made monitoring easy for them because rather than lumping all of their traffic in with everyone else's VPN traffic through a commercial provider, they, they knew that this was solely used by APT33. So all of the traffic, could have been attributed to APT33 in that respect. Right. Um, the interesting thing about this is that APT33 decided to set up their own open VPN infrastructure on their own servers, so it made it very easy to track all the way through because you, you, know, you knew the starting point for them. Um, they weren't obfuscated in a mix of a bunch of other people's traffic. But some of the things they also um, noticed that they were accessing like pen testing website sites like different companies. Mm -hmm. uh, there were, I guess, webmail. They were looking at different uh, vulnerability web like sites for vulnerability information and you know crypto hacking sites, things like that. So, so while they were connected to this infrastructure, through this, through this infrastructure, right, right doing their research right. and whatnot, right, right, right. Okay. So that exactly that's, that was my point is. You know, so not only are they targeting their victims through this uh, infrastructure, they're also doing their own, you know, research on maybe some of their next exploits or vulnerabilities that they want to exploit and things like that. Right, right. It's also interesting to me, like, I'm not quite sure I understand. There's a picture here where we kind of show right, right, right. all the layers here, but I'm not quite sure I, I fully understand. But there's definitely, you know, these are all their targets victims. over here. There's a lot of le levels or layers of indirection that would make things a lot more difficult right, uh, right. for you know a network defender right, to monitor right. or you know get wind of that they're being i guess you would be you know if i was a defender i'd be looking at this cloud proxy stuff that they use because that's probably how they're going to interact with with the my victims. targets that right. work at my company right right um so that would be but you know interesting to know what those right sources are what those ips are and track that activity um, but even then, like looking at the cloud proxy, you're kind of, you know, I guess the point of it was to isolate themselves, right? So you might be able to see the cloud proxy, but, you know, maybe you might not see who the victim is, you know, obviously unless if it's you being targeted. And right. And on the other end, on the other side of the cloud proxy, you wouldn't know, you know, you'd have some difficulty in, in knowing what's on the other side of that as well. Right, right. In theory, it was a good idea, but uh, I guess in practice, it turned out to not be uh, that successful. For right, them. especially because their initial gateway in here was the easiest area to monitor. And right. As soon as you figured that out, if you were able to figure out this left-hand side, you're able right. to get back to the right. sources, which I guess probably pointed back to Iran in some way that was a little bit easier to figure right. out. Whereas if you're starting from over here on the right side, it would be Getting more difficult to figure with, out. Right. And um, I think one of the other things is probably this is very difficult to manage with all these layers and make sure it's all set up properly and you know all the routes are you know going the way you expect them to be going and things like that, right? Right. So if you had to manage all of that, it's probably very difficult as well. Right, managing the infrastructure. Right. It looks like they had quite a bit of infrastructure. They don't really give you any right. hard numbers here, but right. um, uh, but yeah, sure. The more infrastructure you have, the more difficult it is to manage. If you're if you're trying to protect yourself against these, you know, these organizations, you know, I guess there's, uh, because of the layered uh, targeting efforts, you, you know, you can't just focus on one area. So you got to look at cloud infrastructure, VPN infrastructure, you got to kind of, you know, be monitoring everything coming into your networks. All right, Manish, I thought we'd take a look at the internet weather for this week. 
nothing really super amazing, but we'll cover uh, a few things that I thought were maybe more important than other things. Uh, so this is the most probe ports. This is where we see most of the probe, most of the scanning activity uh, port-wise, but not necessarily the most number of people scanning. Uh, and here we see 8089 jumped up six positions from where it had been. So I guess it might have been below, like number 11 last week. And uh, 6,001, or 60,001, I should say, uh, jumped up seven positions. So we're gonna take a closer look at those two because they're kind of interesting. The other ones we've talked about before, Microsoft File Sharing, Microsoft SQL Server, 1433, Telnet is always, because all the IoT stuff that has Telnet running, um, there's tons of scanning on that still. 8545 is that uh, Ethereum um, right. GETH wallet, I think, right. if I remember right, uh, which we continue to see scanning on in remote desktop protocol. So real quickly, let's look at 8089. This one's kind of hard to see, so I showed a one-year chart to kind of um, accentuate how we went from really very little scanning on this port to an increased amount of scanning. So you can see there's a lot of... Um, uh, regularity or regular spikes that occurred uh, prior to any increase in, in lots of scanning activity. And those regular spikes were pretty much the known good guy researchers, I'll call them, like Shodan, Census, uh, those kinds of guys who are going out, scanning the internet, collecting mm -hmm. that data, putting it out there for everybody to see. So that's what a lot of those um, those spikes are in there. But then around, I would say the springtime, we started to see a lot more scanning here. Now this port 8089 TCP is kind of well known as being associated with the Splunk Universal Forwarder service. And that's a REST API that the Splunk application um, uh, has enabled. Yeah, I, I don't know if you need it turned on all the time, but I think by default it is. And this might be some scanning as attempts to find either maybe weak or poorly secured Splunk instances out there uh, by some set of actors, it looks like. So that's word to the wise that you might want to, you know, limit or restrict access to port 8089 or check your Splunk instances. So in our world, you know, I guess Splunk is a lot of times used for security purposes, right? Mm -hmm monitoring security, but I guess, you know, there's probably a ton of other companies using it for a lot of other things, like maybe tracking financial data or Could be, yeah. like that, right? I mean, a lot of people use Splunk or Elasticsearch or any of these other big data. Splunk is kind of its own thing from a log analysis right. collection kind of platform, but uh, Elasticsearch and some of these other big data solutions, people use them for different things. Yeah, I've seen a lot of different uses, and I think there's even probably some turnkey like website stuff that you can enable like smaller Splunk instances right. for trial um, on you know web hosting platforms and whatnot. So that could be some cases of why there could be small deployments of Splunk that have little bits of data, but maybe good data that people are looking for and they're not secured properly, potentially. Right. And that's what's being looked for there. The other one, I kind of showed two charts here because this is the actual amount of scanning like raw scanning activity. And it's kind of hard to see the pattern, but I noticed this, this kind of what, what I like to call a sawtooth waveform. And I was like, oh, that really looks like organized activity by a large number of scan sources. So this is the volume of scanning, but this is the number of scan SIPs for the same ports, obviously, same time frame. And you can kind of see the rise and fall of the number of scan SIPs involved in scanning on this port 60,001 a lot more clearly in the bottom one. 
you know, normal, it's not a lot. I would say it's probably like three to 4,000 or so um, scan sources per hour that we're seeing. Uh, it's probably somewhere in that 11 to 20 in the top 20 range. We only really show the top 10 normally. Uh, when I looked at this, and I did have some samples of this in our, um, in our honeypots, and we can see that it looks like it's mostly scanning for this IP camera interface. Um, it's kind of, a, there's this JAWS web server that has a remote code vulnerability on a specific IP camera, and okay. it looks like that's what that's really geared for. It's trying to push a payload of malware that's this Mirai-like sample. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not, you know, the original Mirai. Right, it's right, like right. A, it's a variant, right? Like many generations down the line variation of Mirai. Right. And uh, for the most part, the majority of scan sources we're seeing are from Brazil, Thailand, and China. Um, a lot in Brazil for some reason. Maybe there's a lot of these types of cameras in Brazil. Right, I so I was just going to ask, so, you know, typically like Mirai, the, you know, the, I guess the camera gets scanned. If it's vulnerable, it gets hacked, and then it starts. It the, the probably gets recruited into well, it. Right, yeah. right. But I wouldn't say it's exclusively um, this scanning is all from just those types of devices. There's probably a healthy mix of other types of IoT or embedded types of devices as well uh, in the mix there. All right, so then in terms of the most sources probing, there's not a lot of big um, variations from what we've seen in previous weeks. We talked about some of these ports already, uh, but port 9000, that did jump up 31 positions, so that's kind of a pretty significant uh, rise there. Um, and uh, I guess I would mention port 5555 is most notably known as part of the Android debugger service. Right. Uh, and then we have uh, SSH rounding out the bottom. So let's take a look at port 9000 TCP, and you can see that uh, this really rose quite significantly from a baseline norm of maybe 800 or so scan sources per hour up to we're at about 12,000 scan sources per hour. So that's a pretty significant yeah. spike. Over just over the past, I would say, week here or so, when I looked at, we only had a very uh, smattering of, uh, of samples in the honeypot for this, but there was a, a bunch of attempts for URL fetches on port 9000 that related to PHP MyAdmin, where it looked like they were trying to find ones that like left the setup program behind so that they could be kind of reinitialized or reset up. So it might be an attempt to access MySQL servers. I'm just guessing. I don't know. That's what PHP MyAdmin's for. The thing I thought was a little interesting is that the scanning predominantly, again, is from China, Brazil, and Thailand, but not in the same order as the other one. Uh, so I don't know if this is related to the 60,001. Right. It really, really clustered in those three countries, which is kind of a little unusual to me, just because Brazil and Thailand, not China so much, they're always in there. Um, but I thought it was interesting that those three were the top three for this port as well. But I didn't get a chance to kind of cross-correlate and see if it's the same sources Devices, doing scanning right, on both right. ports and whatnot. Uh, but there's a possibility there that there might be more to this that I'm missing um, in terms of, because our honeypot didn't really pick up as much as I would like to get a good, healthy understanding of what I really think is happening there. So probably more, more to say about this one, especially if this trend continues. Right for some period of time, because there's probably, when you have, you go from a very low number, less than 1,000 scan sources up to 12,000 overnight, there's a botnet in play. Right. Something is behind this, and uh, it would be good to understand what it, what it is and what's, what's motivating the scanning on that port uh, a little bit more clearly.
The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.